Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. Sit down, here we go, here we go, here we go. Sorry to run. Just stand where you are, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, who in your Son has given us a pioneer of salvation and made him a true and eternal priest and mediator of his people, grant, we beg you, that we hold him fast in love, learn obedience and discipleship, and are brought into the heavenly sanctuary through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Ghost, one God, now and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, so much to do. Uh, remember this week, dinner, your last chance at free dinner this week. Uh, so come Wednesday. You can go to confession if you want early and uh, then stay for today. And that's it for this year then. So off we go. Uh, the women's retreat. If you could sign up for this, Pete Ladick's going to come and do what he did for the men last year, which is sort of forgiveness Absolution, but he's going to use three different movie clips, which are fascinating. I know that on Friday you've done some stuff with Pastor Nelson and uh, also with Pastor Buick. So much, so much the better. You'll, uh, I mean, Pete's a genius, and it'll be fun to have him here. He'll preach for the weekend. I think Dr. Just may come up because they're old, old friends. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. Anyway, sign up. It's April 15 and 16. Do your taxes, then go to the women's retreat. With your tax refund, which you've already got, put some money in the basket for uh, Steve Chester and Rachel Chester left for Guatemala this morning. Rachel is the lead for this uh, Concordia Mequon trip to Guatemala, so drop some money in the basket. We'll send it to them. What else? Did I forget anything? Anything else going on? I have a hundred things to think to talk to you about, but um, all right, so let's, let's have a little fun. We're, we want to talk a little bit about Hebrews... 11, and maybe finish that up today, but I want to read you a story first, uh, which now, if you would have, I mean, how's your Lent going, right? So this is about the time when the things you gave up are starting to bother you a little bit. I don't know if you found this. Um, if you're fasting, you know, the things you're fasting from suddenly look good, you know, whether that's ice cream or gossip, they suddenly look wonderful to you. You think if you could just have some, it would be, you know... Uh, it has its own, it has its own, Lent has its own sharpness about it. You push against the darkness, the darkness pushes back. Just hold on. You know, if you can't, if you think you can't hold on, um, listen to this story, okay? Let me see here if I can find this. Hold on. There was Eleazar, one of the leading teachers of the law, a man of great age and distinguished bearing. He was being forced to open his mouth and eat pork, but preferring an honorable death to an unclean life, he spat it out and voluntarily submitted to flogging, as indeed men should act who have the courage to refuse to eat forbidden food, even for love of life. For old acquaintance's sake, the officials in charge of this sacrilegious feast had a word with Eleazar in private. They urged him to bring meat which he himself was permitted to eat and which he himself had prepared, and then only pretend to be eating the sacrificial meat as the king had ordered. In that way, he would escape death and take advantage of the clemency which their long-standing friendship merited. But Eleazar made an honorable decision one worthy of his years and of his authority of old age, worthy of the gray hairs he had attained to and wore with such distinction, worthy of his perfect conduct from childhood up, but above all, worthy of the holy and God-given law. 
So he answered at once, send me quickly to my grave. If I went through with this pretense at my time of life, many of the young might believe that at the age of 90, Eliezer had turned apostate. If I practiced deceit for the sake of a brief moment in my life, I should lead them astray and bring stain and pollution on my old age. I might for the present avoid man's punishment, but alive or dead, I shall never escape from the hand of the Almighty. So if I now die bravely, I shall show that I have deserved my long life and leave the young with a fine example to teach them how to die a good death, gladly and nobly, for our revered and holy laws. When he finished speaking, he was immediately dragged away to be flogged. Those who had a little while before shown him friendship now became his enemies because, in their view, what he had said was madness. When he was almost dead from the blows, Eliezer sighed deeply and said, To the Lord belongs all holy knowledge. He knows what terrible agony I endure in my body from this flogging, though I could have escaped death. Yet he knows also that in my soul I suffer it gladly, because I stand in awe of him. So he died, and by his death he left a heroic example and a glorious memory, not only for the young, but also for the great body of the nation. That's 2 Maccabees 6. So that's a few hundred years before what we're reading. You know, they would have that in their memory the way you have, for example, the Revolutionary War in your memory. And it's really interesting to read that way because you hear uh, such a unique and honorable way to live, something that's quite uncommon. This relativizes your Lenten fast, of course. And as we read through today, you'll, he you'll hear that the writer to the Hebrews appeals to this as if everybody understands it. You know, everybody just knows that this is the way that we live. I'll read you one more. It's very long, but I'm going to truncate it for you. It's about the woman with the seven sons. I'll just read you about uh, the first son, and then it'll carry on. Again, seven brothers with their mother had been arrested and were being tortured by the king with whips and thongs to force them to eat pork. When one of them, speaking for all of them, said, What do you expect us to learn by interrogating us? We are ready to die rather than break the laws of our fathers. The king was enraged, and he ordered up great pans and cauldrons to be heated up, and this was done at once. Then he gave orders that the spokesman's tongue should be cut out, and that he should be scalped and mutilated before the eyes of his brother, before the eyes of his mother and his six brothers. This wreck of a man, the king ordered to be taken, still breathing to the fire and roasted in one of the pans. As the smoke from it steamed out far and wide, the mother and her sons encouraged each other to die nobly. The Lord God is watching, they said, and without doubt has compassion on us. Did not Moses tell Israel to their faces in the song denouncing apostasy, he will have compassion on his servants? After the first brother had died, the second was subjected to the same brutality. Skin and hair were torn off his head. He was asked, will you eat? And it goes on and on. Every brother in front of their mother and the other brothers, they first cut their tongue out, they scalp them, they skin them, 
and they fry them alive one after another. It's, a, it's just a gruesome thing to be reading. And the mother, the entire time, um, in her native tongue, you know, says, carry on, you know, it's all going to be okay. Now, the thing is, um, I just want to read you the last bit about the mother who was um, so wonderful. I mean, listen to this. She's at the last son now, the last sons. The king is like saying to her, turn to your sons and tell them to live. Turn to your sons and tell them to live. After much urging from the king, she agreed to persuade her son. She leaned towards him and flouting the cruel tyrant, she said in her native language, my son, take pity on me. I carried you nine months in the womb. I suckled you for three years. I reared you and I brought you up to your present age. I beg you, child, look at the sky and look at the earth. See all that is in them and realize that God made them out of nothing. That's where Hebrews starts, right? That's Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, I'm sorry, Hebrews 11, 3. And that man comes into being the very same way. Do not be afraid of this butcher. Accept your death and prove yourself worthy of your brother's so that by God's mercy, here's the key, I may receive you back again along with them. She barely finished speaking when the young man spoke out, what are you waiting for? I do not submit. So they do exactly the same thing to him. The king, exasperated by these scornful words, was beside himself with rage, so he treated him worse than the others, and the young man died, putting his whole trust in the Lord without having incurred defilement. Then finally, after her sons, the mother died. This then must conclude our amount of the eating of, and then it goes on and on. So here's the thing. Uh, We go through this long list today of people who have been faithful. And in some ways, if you sort of just read through as if, um, you know, there's this and that and this and that, it doesn't really mean anything to us. But it meant a tremendous amount to them. This history was in them, and they knew what it was to be persecuted. And so far, we've had this setup about why it's better to go to church. It's better to go to church because you're near to God, because you have access to God, because you're included in the Holy Family, because God listens to you, because God heeds your pleas, because God protects you, because God serves you, right? We went through this over and over and over again about why it's better. But probably the chief thing is it's better at the point of death. And already you hear these things where they say, so that you can die a noble death so that you can die a good death. And even us, we have prayers in our books where we pray that people would die a good death and have peace at the last, right? If you've been around people who've been dying, it's very difficult. Sometimes people struggle horribly. Uh, And then other people don't. And that's not always an indication of the person. Um, Some people have particular troubles at the end. You remember even uh, there's this cryptic verse where it says, and the devil contended for Moses' body after his death. Right? And the angels came and bore him up. He says, this is, this is, you don't quite know what's going on. The point is, you do all that you can in your power to um, remain faithful. So spin your Bibles open, and let's just sort of read down through this. I'm going to try to go through the appendix that I gave you. So Hebrews 11. I read this to you in part to suggest to you that there's more to faith than usually meets the eye. This is going to be the last page of what I wrote for you, but I want to say it right now at the top, which is there's an objective component to faith. 
right? So, so often, and so much of the emphasis is placed on my personal relationship with God or what I believe about God or whether I believe or not, or, you know, even in what I quoted from the Augsburg Confession this morning in the bulletin, it requires you to believe that your sins are going to be forgiven, which then, of course, makes me wonder about whether I can meet up to such a requirement. It was a difficult text, even though that's, you know, what's there. So, so often we always think about faith is about me and my personal relationship with God. You know, it's very difficult to get to that. I mean, that's down several levels from what Hebrews is or even what we just read in Maccabees. And you remember that Luther um, used to tell people to read from the Apocrypha where Maccabees is found. And also, there were readings appointed, you know, in, for example, in chapel at Wittenberg and such, you know, that people read from the Apocrypha. We don't. We should. We don't. Um, but it's, it's a very interesting story. The point is, there is this objective thing. For example, as Hebrews 11 starts out, this notion that God made everything out of nothing. Okay, if that's too hard for you, this notion that Eliezer was strong and was willing to be flogged and beaten to death. Or, if that's too much, these boys were willing to have their tongues cut out because they made a good confession. How do you, how do you punish somebody who makes a good confession? You cut out their tongue. You know, it's normal torture from then all the way through medieval times. You know, hot tongs, and they'd pull the tongue out and, you know, lap it off and then carry on from there. One of the boys, about the fifth boy, sticks his tongue out of the guy after he makes the confession, like, I know what's coming, so, you know. Breaker Morant, you seen Breaker Morant? Shoot straight, you seen Breaker Morant? That might be your assignment for Lent, I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, at the end he's in the chair, he's like, shoot straight, you guys. I think he said you guys. Uh, <laughs> you know? So, so the thing is, the point is, there's this objective body of stuff that looks like the sky is blue. Now, you can believe the sky is blue or not. It's completely up to you and you're free. Do with it what you want. But just so you know... There's all sorts of ways to test for the sky being blue, and there's a lot of people who believe that the sky is blue. And if you're the only person who doesn't believe that the sky is blue or you just want to close your eyes, it's like C.S. Lewis says, you know, not believing in God is like closing your eyes and saying that the sun doesn't rise because you don't see it. Okay? Uh, That's one way to go through life. But what's happening in Hebrews is they're trying to get you a paradigm for how you should live your life. This is what the world looks like. I understand that there are all kinds of competing paradigms, right? But if you're in the church, this is how the world looks, okay? So here it is. Faith is the assurance, the hypostasis, the stuff. So it has a double meaning. Hypostasis is the Greek. It means there's this objective thing. So it's not just assurance. I gave you, um, I think I gave you all this maybe on the, on the, uh, the second page there. Faith, pistis, this guarantee, you know, faith is the reality, the basis. Or even means, it even means a pedestal. It can be the word for a pedestal, like you put... You know, you put a plant on it, right? So faith is this thing. It's not first about, it's only because we think we're all the most important thing in the world. I'm the center of the universe has been, you know, one of the great truths of the enlightenment, that everything revolves around me, not around the sun, right? I'm the center of the universe. And so, you know, a tree falling doesn't make noise if nobody hears it, all that kind of stuff. So the point of this is there's this objective thing that happens, because God is making it happen. He's working history around. He's, sometimes he's opening the Red Sea, and then some days he's standing by Eliezer. And all these objective things happen, and you can believe it or not. That's your subjective thing. You can have a personal faith about it or not, but that really doesn't have anything to do with it because God is bigger than you are, and God is at work, and even if you're not at work, God is still at work. 
And you can deny it if you want, and if you want to be a crazy man, you can deny it. But here, just think about these, if you will, facts. So that's another way, you know, we're almost betrayed by the translation. Uh, faith, you know, is this pedestal. It's this reality. So God is at work now, and God will be at work next time. It doesn't really tell you what faith is, you see. It doesn't really give you a, a definition. It's more like a proverb. This is what faith looks like, right? And then it's going to tell you what it looks like. And then it's kind of up to you to get on board or not get on board. Faith is the assurance of things for, for, for the conviction of things not seen, For by it, men of old, Eliezer, for example, or this woman, received divine approval. By faith, we understand we're in. Before he goes to the history, he goes to you. By faith, we understand that the world is created out of the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear, right? Or as I've given you kind of an alternate translation, I'm looking on the second page where it says 11, 1, and 2. Faith is the reality. Faith is the hypostasis. Faith is the pedestal of things that are hoped for. Faith is the evidence or the guarantee. So it's not about you. This is about what God is doing. Faith is the proof of things not seen. Faith is what happened in the past is proof that things are going to happen in the future. Right? God who is faithful in the past is going to be faithful when it's your turn to die as well. That's the point. Right? And the only way you can escape that is if you refuse it. Because of this kind of faith, people, and this is very interesting, you could read this as because of this faith, God approved them, God attested them, God was pleased with them, God spoke well about them, God used them as a witness. God is the one doing that verb. It's not about you. It's about, not about them. It's about by faith, right? By faith, um, These old men, these old women, got divine approval. God was pleased with them. And when you're faithful, God is pleased with you as well. Now, uh, you may or may not know um, some of these people who follow, but look at the people he loved. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, Abel's not a Jew, right? right? This is pre-Hebrew time. So in some sense, he's a, he's a Gentile, if you will, or he's, you know, we don't quite have the categories for that yet, but Abel brings the sacrifice. You remember how it was? The Lord said, why don't you do this, please? And Abel says, I will, and Cain um, does less. He doesn't bring meat, he brings plants. He doesn't bring his best, he brings less than his best. And so the Lord is pleased with Abel, and he's not pleased with Cain. And of course, what happens then, this is always true with two competing gods, one of them has to die. So Cain can either have a life that he himself approves or he faces the disapproval of God and he thinks like so many human beings think, if I just kill the other guy, it'll all sort itself out. The world is a fascinating place right now. So it's just a fascinating place. You know, if you just kill the other person, your life will work out. Well, here's the problem. When you start killing people, it's very difficult to stop and you should be very suspicious of the person next to you once the killing starts. You know? So, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he received approval by his approval as righteousness. God bearing witness, so God testifies, this is good. God testifies, this is good. We're so afraid of this as Lutherans sometimes, to say that God is pleased with us, to say that God uses us to say that God attests us. But here it is. 
when you live in faith, God is pleased with you. I'll go all the way to say when you live in faith, God rewards you. Not as cause and effect. Frankly, sometimes if you live in faith, God will reward you with suffering. Because suffering is the only way to learn some things. That's part of the point of Lent. You, you can only learn some things by suffering, right? I mean, it's twain. There's some things you, you, you pick a cat by the tail. There's some, some it's, it's a way that you learn things that you don't learn any other way, right? <laughs> pick a cat by the tail, you learn some things you can't learn any other way. You're just a different person if you suffer and then come through it, right? So you shouldn't automatically think, you know, God's going to reward me with the lottery. God may reward you with, you know, a thorn in the flesh, St. Paul. So God bears witness by accepting his gifts. He died, but through his faith, he's still speaking. By faith, Enoch. Now you remember Enoch, he's in these list of guys. It's very early in Genesis. One, two, three, four, five, six, die. Come to another seven. And Enoch pleased God. So God decided he didn't have to die. He's mysterious. We don't know about him. Kind of like the virgin mother. What happened to her? Who knows? By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found, like Moses was not found, right? Because God had taken him. Before he was taken up, he was attested, or he was found pleasing, or God said, he pleases me. You know, I'd like, by the end of this, I'd like to move you all the way to the point where you can say about yourself, in a humble, Christocentric way, God is pleased with me. This is utterly objective. When you say your prayers, God is pleased with you. When you go to church, God is pleased with you. When you're generous, God is pleased with you. When you're merciful, God is pleased with you. Right? When you have your children baptized, God is pleased with you. These are objective things. They're things that are done. It's not about you making it up, some idea, and this will please God. It's not about you being proud about this. It's when you do your duty, when you obey. What's the difference between Jesus and everybody else? What's the difference? What's the difference between Jesus? Jesus can do what he's told. That's the difference between Jesus and everybody else. One difference. Jesus can do what he's told. You ever thought about that? That Jesus can do what he's told. That's one of the reasons God is so pleased with it. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him, the future, endured the cross, present suffering, scorning its shame, and setting down at the right hand of God. Right? So Jesus pleases God. In return, God gives him suffering. In return, Jesus has hope and is drawn near to the presence of God. That is not the way that we think. But it is, of course, if you read this, the way that we should think. Because God wants to treat you exactly the way he treats Christ. He wants to be pleased with you. When he's pleased with you, he will reward you. One of the rewards may be suffering. And in that suffering, you learn things that you can't learn any other way. And on the far side of suffering is always hope because... There's resurrection, which is how this ends up, right? And they got their dead back. We read that in Maccabees, okay? By faith, Enoch was taken up, so he didn't see death. He wasn't found. Without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever draw near to God. And you remember we've been talking about axis and drawing near. This morning I had, um, I was reading uh, a little theological paper by a guy, a genius of a guy, who 
wrote in, uh, who at the beginning of the paper quoted Ephesians 2 um, and Ephesians 3, where he talked about, by this we have access to God. St. Paul saying exactly the same thing. We have access to God and we are pulled near to God. Your whole life is about proximity. You think, remember the Old Testament and the, you know, there was a place where, you know, the Gentiles could go and then where the God-fearers could go and then where the women could go and then where the men could go and then the priests could go and then the high priest would go closer, 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 right? To be near to God is to be safe. To be near to God is to be saved. How do you become near to God? You go to the place where God invites you to go, especially the Eucharist, right? But beyond that, where? Eliezer, you're drawn into a particular life, a noble life. This is the thing that's lost in America, the, 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 the notion of a noble life, a life that's given to others. It's very interesting on all sides, all the people who are saying they're for me, I just have the sneaking suspicion they're really for themselves. Just, just listen, right? Listen whether the person is more important or the virtue is more important. Just listen. On all sides, that's no political endorsement or non-endorsement. Just listen how people talk. It's almost unavoidable. They talk about themselves and their folks as opposed to you, unless you happen to be one of their folks. It's a, this, is, this is the problem with when there's no longer even, you know, I'm not big on America being a Christian nation, but at least the virtues were kind of in a cloudy way around, and they're not around anymore. And so, as the scriptures say, everybody can do what's right in his own eyes which always then boils down to self-interest. And self-interest always expresses itself in power, right? And power expresses itself in destruction. And so we've come to the point where we have to destroy our enemies. And the more enemies you identify, the more people you have to destroy. And as soon as you begin to destroy people, you have chaos, right? Which is a completely demonic thing. And that's what you're up against. It's very hard to stop once it goes. So, um, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, took heed, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which comes by faith. So, first you get um, three early church patriarchs. You get three really, really early people who say, I am in, and this is true. Okay? Then after that, you get these folks. By faith, Abraham obeyed and was called to go out to a place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was to go. Right? So Abraham, this moon worshiper in Ur, and the Lord says, what you should do is pack up all your things and take a left turn right, and head for the Mediterranean. I'm going to take you to a place where... We'll get a fresh start. It takes a, re- a remarkable amount of obedience, a remarkable amount of faith. So I've often said to you that faith and obedience are synonyms. It takes a remarkable amount of obedience, a remarkable amount of faith to absorb that, especially as prosperous as Abram was. By faith he sojourned in the lack of promise in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. Isaac, Jacob, that would have just resonated with people. These are Hebrews, right? They're Jews. This is their history. They rehearse this. They keep the Passover. They remember. For he looked forward to the city which has foundations, 
whose builder and maker is God. That parallels first God makes the universe, now God builds cities. It's really important for you to understand what it meant in the ancient world to have a city or to have land. If you had land, you had status. If you had land, you had a way to eat and survive. If you had land, you had prosperity. If you had land, you were respected. If you had land, you had a claim. You remember in Egypt when uh, the Pharaoh would, one of the reasons they could enslave the Israelites so easily is that they said, you don't have a land and you don't have a God and you're not even human, right? You don't have any of the things that makes up human beings. It's the, way you could, it's the way that we always enslave other people. We demean them, right? We make them less than human. This is bigotry, racism, genocide. They all work the same way. We say about other people, you're less than human. And as soon as people are less than human, we treat them as less than human. We treat them as animals. We treat them as something else. Makes it very easy, right? That's what happened to the Israelites. Um, and so here, this great restoration where he says, You'll be my child. You'll be part of the family. You'll be my people. You'll grow. You'll have a land. You'll have status. You'll have prosperity. You'll have assurance. You'll have a place to put your head down. That's all happening with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By faith, Sarah received the power to conceive. You remember we've done this before with the, the beautiful icon of the three visitors, right? The three visitors come. You remember this icon? And if there's a place for you at the table, the three visitors come and say, "Next, when we come back, your wife will be... Right? It's glorious stuff. Even when she was past the age, and she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, Abraham, and him as good as dead, he was too old to have children, were born descendants as many of the stars of the heaven and as numeral and as innumerable as grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith. This is very important, not having received what was promised. This is very difficult for us because it's especially difficult working in the church. Um, this, is one of the, this is one of the great things that undoes pastors and church workers. It undoes church treasurers and presidents and elders because we want to see what we do. If you throw money in the basket, this is what's going to happen. Steve and Rachel are going to go to Guatemala. They're going to do some good. They're going to come back and say, we went to Guatemala and this is great and you can feel good about that. If we say to you, we're going to be merciful to people on the street we don't even know we may never see them again. Or we're going to have Christmas sharing and all these people are going to come in and you know sometimes we get some repeat visitors but we have a lot of people that you know you just may not know. You have to get good with the notion that the blessing is in the thing. Right? Jesus great words. I mean if you could live by this you would get it. Expect nothing in return. Right? What does Jesus say? Turn the other cheek, do good to those that hate you. Give to those who can't repay and expect nothing in return. That is the Christian faith. In a nutshell, that's the sanctified life, that you could expect nothing in return. The obedience is the thing, not the payoff. The reward may be suffering. It's not in this life. These guys are all very clear. Your life is extraordinarily short. It's difficult to see this when you're young. It's almost too easy to see it when you're old. That what's in this life is not the thing that matters. That's why it takes such discipline. That's why you have Lent, to practice the disciplines. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, why are we always talking about this stuff? It's not because we have such great needs. It's not because things don't work. You know, in some ways, we don't have any needs. In some ways, everything works. That's not the point. The point is, is that this is what Jesus asks of you. 
This is what the father asked of the son, and he was different than everybody else because he obeyed. If you need proof of that, you should come back next week for Palm Sunday. Right? Why do you do it? Because it's very simple. This is what God asks of you. There's this reality that God spoke the world into existence and that the world turns on mercy and God wants all his children home again. And in the interim, it'll be best for you and for me. It'll be most Christ-like if we live in a particular way, even though, as happened to these people, they may never see it. Moses never got to the promised land, right? Joseph had asked to have his bones carried back to the promised land when he died in Egypt. It's not... It's not an, you do A, so you get B. You just do A and expect nothing in return. That's the Christian life. Jesus, you know, that's, that's how he talks in the Sermon on the Mount. All right. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar. That's hope when you can start to see, that's faith, when you can kind of see the future. You're confident that God is going to work it out. I mean, there's no more greater proof of this than raising kids. Most of you are going to die before your kids die. And frankly, you know, you can only do so much. And then you just have to say what we say at the end of baptism. The prayer at the end of baptism, and now that this has become your child, please, it's the great argument for having your kids baptized. Because somebody needs to push them on toward the promised land after you've gone. Typically, you're going to die before your kids. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles here on earth. It's very difficult for us because we become prosperous. For immigrants, for people who are dispossessed, for people who are displaced, death is often looks like a pretty good option. And they don't make the same sort of claims that people like we make when we have benefited so much and actually get pretty comfortable, right? I mean, it's very hard to say this, that they're strangers and exiles on earth. I don't think any of you feel like strangers and exiles on earth. Life is too good for us. But we have to remember cognitively, you know, we're strangers and exiles on earth. Eliezer, ooh, I'm lived to be 90 years old. I'm going to give all of that up because you say I should eat that and God says I shouldn't eat that. This is really a simple choice for me except for the part about, you know, flogging me to death. So, for people who speak, thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from what they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire, and there's the text, a better country. The church is a better country. The church is a better access. The church is a better closeness. The church is a better family. We've done all these, right? It's better, it's better, it's better, it's better, it's better. Why go to church? This is the seventh or eighth time where he said, the reason you're part of this community is because it's better for you. You should say to yourself, how can it be better for me when the people that he's going to reference just got skin fried alive, right? It's better for me because God says for me, it's better for me. You can only say it's not better for you if you take the short view. If you take the short view, it's worse for you, or it could be worse for you. It could be dark for you, it could be painful for you, it could be a lot of things for you. But if you take the long view, that from the moment you're conceived, you live forever. If you take the long view, your life looks very, very different. And the best part is this, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. I think you never think about that, and I rarely think about it either. 
which is we're always worried that we're going to be ashamed because we're Christians, because we call God our God. I don't know if you ever thought about it the other way around, but is God ashamed to be called your God? I mean, think about yourself. I was reading a thing about guardian angels the other day about, um, this is outside the, the, you know, probably the Missouri Senate boundaries. So I was reading about <laughs> conversations with your guardian angels. I'm just, I'm curious about this, you know, and, and uh, people who have these um, ongoing conversations. And then this is like, if you chase the mystical aspect of this a little while, you start to have to, then people have to try to discover what kind of angel they're talking to, as the New Testament says, how you discern the spirits. Test the spirits, discern which one, how do you do that? It was very interesting. I just, you know, I don't put this out as, like I'm still kind of thinking about this, but they said, one of the guys who said, you know, you test, you test the spirits in this way. An angel will startle you and then console you. A demon will console you and then startle you. That's very interesting, you think about that. So the angel comes to Mary, and then... Have no fear, no phobos, right? For you'll bear a child. Or you take the opposite, the temptation of Jesus, right? So the Satan comes to him, and he's very calm, and it's very rational. Wouldn't it be better for your life if you made those stones bread or became king? Wouldn't that be good for you? Then your mommy could be so proud, right? And then the harshness at the end. And he departed from him and promised to return at a more opportune time, which, of course, is the cross, right? The more opportune time is the cross. And so St. Peter repeats the temptations of Jesus. You'll never go to the cross. St. Peter repeats exactly what Satan said. So Jesus has to deflect not only Satan, but also St. Peter, right? And then he has to go alone. This is very, very difficult. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he was received the promises. He was ready to offer up his only son, and Isaac was descended. He considered God was able to raise man even from the dead. So, I mean, I just, I can barely read the story, you know, anymore. This difficult story of you kill your son. And um, the suggestion here with Hebrews is that Abraham actually was so obedient that he knew that God would figure out a way to give him a son back. That the God who gave him a son would not give him a son. It's very interesting, right? The psychological aspect and the pain that he must have felt in that. He concluded that God was able to raise him from the dead. Hence, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And Isaac invoked future blessings of Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship, right? By faith, Moses, when he was born, this is 23, was hid for three months because they saw the child was beautiful. Beauty as a window to the divine or knowing what's best. Right? By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called Pharaoh's, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had a better house. He had better access to the king somewhere else. Choosing to share. Look, here's his reward for being well-pleased. The ill-treatment of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to share the ill treatment with people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I mean, this, is, this could not be more like 2016. These are your choices, right? You can be here where it's more difficult and you'll be ill-treated for that, or you can be there where it's more easy but everything will go to ashes. It's interesting how nothing changes, right? There's just God asking for obedience and 
If you obey, he's pleased with you and he rewards you, but the reward isn't this sort of meritorious thing where you climb up into heaven or it may not even be impressive. It may be that you're treated poorly, right? I don't know where I'm I mean, the thing is, this takes so long. Just, uh, just, I'm just going to shoot down because I may not want to do the same thing next week. You get the gist of it, but I'm just going to take you to 32. What more shall I say? Time, uh, you know, runs out and fails for me to tell you about Gideon. And, you know, so you sort of go down. It was Gideon and the Midianites and Barak and the Canaanites and Samson and the Philistines and Jephthah and the Ammonites and David and Goliath and everybody else and Samuel. Time would fail me to kind of run through all these stories. You have these in your head, but look what happens. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, David enforced justice, Samuel and the prophets received promises, all of them stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel in the lion's den, quenched raging fire, Daniel in the fiery furnace, escaped the edge of the sword, um, David certainly from Saul, and then the prophets all from, from Ahab, won strength out of weakness, every last one of them became mighty in war, Dan- David and all the rest, put foreign armies to flight, Women received their dead by resurrection, okay, so now you have this sense of, not just in the Old Testament, the widow of Shuma, where Elijah, and then also the widow of Zarephath, the sons are sick, and the prophets come, and they're raised up, and Jesus comes, and he touches the, the bear at Nain, and that boy raises up, right? Some were tortured, some refused to accept release, others might rise again to a better life, others got mocked and scourged, you heard all of that from Maccabees today, and even chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. That's apocryphal about how Isaiah, people thought that Isaiah had been sawn in two, right? It's, it's, there's a little apocryphal book about Isaiah. They were killed by the sword. They went about destitute in the skins of sheep and goats, afflicted, ill-treated, right? All the way through, and then the last word, all of these, though well attested by their faith, all of these whom God spoke well of, all of these whom God loved, all of whom these God promised, all of these whom God rewarded, what? Did not receive what was promised. Not in this life. Since God had foreseen something better for us. Hold on. It'll come to you eventually. You're time bound. Your problem is you count your years as, you know, four score and ten, maybe, yeah. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That is the most interesting thing. That none of these, while they got reward after death, Whatever they're going to get is not perfect until you get there. That is so weird. But Moses and Abraham and David and Gideon and Jephthah and all the rest of them don't get the end. Heaven is a poorer place until your face is there. Heaven is incomplete until the church is reunited. Right? They don't get what they were promised until you... The party starts when you get there. Okay? Just like when you were in college. We got to go. All right. Um, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, next week is uh, Palm Sunday, sword fighting provided for your children. It's going to be great. Uh, Wear wear eye protection, and then uh, we'll have class next week, but not on Easter.